0: we are uh, in a series on the book of Joshua. Um, so, if you have a Bible, I hope you do, uh, turn to Joshua chapter 8. That's where we're at this morning. Uh, great to have you with us. I just, whilst you're turning there, add my welcome to those you've already received if you're with us for the first time. It is great to have you with us, and uh, I trust that you're enjoying your time with us. And uh, there's a, uh, yeah, there are people here who are, who will just be glad to get to know you. So if you haven't met them already, don't rush off at the end, and uh, I trust that we'll make you welcome before the morning is done. Okay, the book of Joshua is a great read. Uh, It's a story that just kind of keeps flowing on, and it's it's been really inspiring. It's got a whole lot of momentum to it. But if you're just kind of connecting in at Joshua chapter 8, there's a few things you need to know about what has been happening. The people of Israel had left Egypt... 40 years before, wandered around in the desert for 40 years because they didn't believe that their God would enable them to conquer the promised land of Canaan. And so at the end of that period, God says, it's time to go back. It's time to believe that you can take this land now together as you follow me. And by the power of God, when the priests took the ark and put their foot... Uh, in the Jordan, as Steve Thomas was speaking to us about Joshua 3 and 4 a few weeks ago, the Jordan, the River Jordan, stopped flowing and all of the people were able to go across uh, into the Promised Land and then they got circumcised. Joshua met with God to encourage him and give him the encounter that he needed to then lead the people to march around Jericho. The walls of Jericho fell down. Great story! Great story! Until last week. Uh, And bless Mike Beaumont for speaking from Joshua chapter 7 last week. He got a whole chapter of sin and defeat. It's a bit sad um, that that happened to the people of Israel. So that's the back story to where we are this morning. The people of Israel sent a few people up to go and take a little bitty city called Ai. But they were chased away. And when they stopped and asked God what was going on. They said there was sin amongst the community and it had to be dealt with. So at the end of chapter seven, they've just dealt with the sin by getting rid of the sinner in this instance. So I'm going to start reading from the beginning of chapter eight. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. Take the whole army with you, and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city." So, Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you, be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city, and when the men come out against us, as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we've lured them away from the city. For they will say, they're running away from us as they did before. So when we flee with them, you, uh, when we flee from them, sorry, you are to rise up from the ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you've taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. Then Joshua sent them off. And they went to the place of ambush and lay in wait between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai that Joshua spent that night with the people. Early the next morning... Joshua mustered his men, and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with a valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. They had the soldiers take up their positions, all those in the camp to the north of the city, and the ambush to the west of it. And that night, Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Arab bar. But he didn't know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them, And they fled towards the desert. And all the men of Ai were called to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out towards Ai the javelin that's in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city." So Joshua held out his javelin towards Ai, and as soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it, and quickly set it on fire. The men of Ai looked back and saw the smoke of the city rising against the sky, but they had no chance to escape in any direction. For the Israelites, who had been fleeing towards the desert, had turned back against their pursuers. For when Joshua... And all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that smoke was going up from the city. They turned round and attacked the men of Ai. The men of the ambush also came out of the city against them so that they were caught in the middle with Israelites on both sides. Israel cut them down, leaving them neither survivors nor fugitives. But they took the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all of the men of Ai in the fields and in the desert where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of the city, as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a permanent heap of ruins, a desolate place to this day. He hung the king of Ai on a tree and left him there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take his body from the tree and throw it at the entrance of the city gate and they raised a large pile of rocks over it which remains to this day then joshua built on mount ebal an altar to the lord the god of israel as moses the servant of the lord had commanded the israelites he built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. And on it, they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he'd written, all Israel, aliens and citizens alike, With their elders, officials and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord facing those who carried it, the priests who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel." Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. Uh, There's probably, as with all of these chapters of Joshua. There's it's an amazing story and some great stuff going on, but a few questions that are prompted. So I think I ought to just deal with what are probably three questions. Well, I'm going to deal with two and leave one. But mention three questions and deal with two that are, arise in this context. One is, if you've just come into this series and you're like, they killed how many people? Uh, that's an issue. And if you look in your news sheet, there's a really good little notice there that says, does the Bible endorse genocide? If you want to know the answer to that question, 5th of December is the place to be. Actually, if you can't wait till then. When we looked at Joshua chapter 2, I tried to grapple with that a little bit, and you can listen to that online. But I'm just going to park that question a little bit for now, because it deserves more attention than it will get in a minute or two from me this morning. But we do want to look at that question there are two other things. The more astute amongst you will have noticed a contradiction in the chapter. 30,000 men and 5,000 men are different numbers. It says early in the chapter that Joshua sent 30,000 men to the ambush, and then later on there's suddenly 5,000 men. And uh, that's worth just paying attention to as well in case it was troubling you. Those of you who are good with detail may have, did you notice that? Did anyone notice that? A few of you. Oh, good. Yeah, very good. Uh, you're awake. That's nice. Um, and paying attention to the Bible. That's even better. Uh, there are two possibilities that are suggested. Uh, one is that the 5,000 was some kind of advanced group that was sent. So there were 30,000 in all, but only 5,000 of them went the night before because it was likely that 30,000 men might be noticed And maybe 5,000 could be hidden. But actually, even 5,000 men spending a 24-hour period near to the walls of the city might be noticed. So the idea that a whole load of them went up ahead, some people say, well, that's not very likely either. Another possibility is that in the copying of this text over the centuries, that a scribe at some point made a mistake in the copying, and copied 30 for, 50, uh, 30 for 5, or 5 for 30, and that those who received the text then carried on faithfully copying the mistake that they'd found. We don't need to be afraid of that. Whilst it's Islamic teaching that the whole of our scriptures are corrupted, actually, we're really open and honest about the fact that there's just a few tidbits here and there that we're not quite sure whether maybe that was a copying error, and they don't make that big a difference, really. Actually, it's not a matter of foundational you know, sort of belief for us, whether there were 30 or 5,000. We can cope with that. And our honesty about that actually makes us more confident, I trust, in the reliability of the Scriptures as, as a whole. The fact that we look at those questions frankly and openly, if you want to look into that more, go to Bible College. We have one in the building here, so there you are. And then the third thing, I guess, that's worth mentioning is there seems to be a bit of an injustice here. I don't know whether you were struck by this. If you were paying attention last week, you will have realized that in Jericho, they had to devote everything to the Lord, which meant that everything alive was killed and everything valuable was given to the treasury of the Lord. But Achan was the sinner who took a few bits and pieces of plunder and he and his whole family get killed. We just finished chapter 7. They're all killed for it. And then the next chapter, here we go, everyone's allowed to have all the plunder. And some livestock, too. Like, doesn't that seem a little bit unfair? How does that work? Um, Well, the thing is, there's a principle in the Bible which does make some sense of this, and it's called first fruits. There's something that God wants from us, which is he wants the first part of what we get, uh, because it establishes that we understand that it's his is a pattern that happened every harvest for the the Jewish people, that the first bit of whatever they got, they gave to God. That actually is right at the heart of why we tithe. God wants the first bit so that uh, it doesn't own us, but that we know it's his really. And then, actually, once we know that it's his really, there's a liberty to handle it. Handle wealth uh, and resources. So... It's not that surprising that there should be one measure of strictness to begin with, and then actually they can start to enjoy some of the bounty that comes from the conquest. Okay, so back to the story. Really, uh, there had been defeat at Ai, and as I said, Ai was just a little city. It wasn't a big. When they went to Jericho, they were like, "Oh, big walls, big city, big problem." When they looked at Ai, having seen Jericho tumble, they said, oh, "Let me take a few of us." Just a few, just go and sort that little one out there. And, um, of course, they were defeated. And in the wake of that defeat, if you turn back to Joshua chapter five, 7 and verse 5, the end of verse 5, it says what happened inside the Israelites' hearts. when Because they've got into the Jordan, they've got across the Jordan, they've seen God, they've defeated Jericho in this most marvellous way, and then when they have this glitch at Ai, what it says is, at this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. The event that took place did something inside them, and their confidence melted away. It vanished. Their hearts fled from them. What we find in this chapter is this. Revival. That is what we find in Joshua chapter 8. As Mike described last week, they had the good sense not to just move on and go and do something else and said, oh well, AI went wrong, let's go find something else to do. They stopped and they asked... What went wrong? Why? Why did that happen? And they got the answer that this sin had taken place and they dealt with that. But there's something here that I want to just reiterate from what Mike said last week. Because the easiest thing in the world is for us, when we have our glitches and mistakes and defeats, is just to put them to one side and just to move on. Because it's awkward, isn't it? It's awkward thinking about things that went wrong and wondering what was our fault so it's just much easier to go and find something else to do, and maybe that will work. Um, some of you have heard me say before, when I was 19, my mum said to me something that was started out good and ended up bad. She said, She said, Stephen, she said, she said, you succeed in everything you do because you don't try and do anything you think you'll fail at. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I recognize to be true, and thank God for my mum being willing to tell me a little bit about myself. But that's true for many of us, isn't it? That we go for those things that we think will work. And when things go wrong, we don't really want to do the hard work of stopping and asking ourselves why. As Mike spoke about last week, they dealt with the why. They found out about Akan's sin and they dealt with it. They dealt with it thoroughly. But there was still this issue of their hearts having melted It's one thing to have got to the root of it, but if your heart is still melted, you've still got a problem. You've still got a problem. And so God says, beginning of chapter 8, to Joshua, Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Take the whole army. Set an ambush. And somehow, in that word from God, the fear was dealt with. Because the very next verse says, so Joshua got up and took the whole army with him. They had gone from being a melted people to being a solid and strong and vigorous people once more. And the thing that made the difference was a word from God. Could we have the next slide, please, Paul? Revival. Revival of people comes in a simple word from God. All it requires is for God to speak a little thing to us and everything in our lives is changed. I don't know what you have experienced by way of defeat in your life. I mean, I could list a few things off. I remember when I was in the sixth form, um, I organized a week-long mission to the school that I was in. I asked for permission to, to preach the gospel to the whole school in one assembly, and we organized, and we spent money and various lunchtime events and things. And the fruit of it, this is quite ironic, actually, the fruit of it was one friend of mine who said that he would be, out of the whole school of, like, 1,200 people, one friend who said he would be willing to explore matters of faith. We did a Bible study together over the following weeks on the Book of Romans, and in the end, he dropped out of doing it because he also made the choice to read the Book of Joshua and said, I don't get that. Genocide. And, uh, and he walked away. It's one of the reasons I, I'm, I'm quite keen that we grapple with that question. Personal experience of the tiny bit of fruit that seems to come from all of that expenditure of energy was actually nipped by that particular issue. At least that was what, what he articulated. Um, I don't know what you've had a go at and has defeated you, it might not have been a mission, it might have been something at work or in your studies or relationships. Life involves these little things. Our lives are peppered with little failures. And what happens is that each one of them eats away at practical faith. And by practical faith, I mean the kind of faith that connects with daily life and influences what we do. kind of eats away at those things. And what, what do we do with that? Well, actually, we look for all kinds of different remedies, don't we? Um, one thing that we might do is to make a philosophy of confusion. I I was in the Christian bookshop yesterday, St. Andrew's Bookshop on uh, St. Clement's, and I picked up a little card of a new Christian group that started in the university, actually, and it articulated their philosophy, and part of their philosophy was this, we concede our inability to know, because faith is born of doubt. Uh, And I thought to myself, no, no, that's not true. Faith is being sure of what we do not see. Now, we experience doubts, but to take our defeats and our challenges and to rationalize them into a philosophy that says, you know, we concede our inability to know. Tell you what, there's no victories lie that way. Actually, the reality of that group, judging by, I had a quick look at their website, is that many of the people in it are Christians struggling with issues of sexual orientation and having resolved not to keep that fight going to live as the Bible says. There's not going to be a victory over that challenge by conceding an inability to know. It might look obvious in that, oh, no, well, I wouldn't do that. But actually, we do that thing. We look at the things that have gone wrong, and we think, oh, I don't know about that. God's quite mysterious anyway, isn't he? So, you know, <sighs> who knows? And we can live that way. It's not the way of future victory. We can live safely, and try to just keep our heads down and moderate our hopes. Well, you know, we'd hoped to take AI but, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter that much after all, does it? I mean, it's just a little bitty city, and there's quite a lot of promised land. So we can allow our hopes and our visions just to, to settle down. Another thing that we might do, and actually quite a lot of Christians do this, when faced with defeat, is we keep, we keep looking for more sin that might explain a bit more. I don't know if you do that. Uh, things have gone wrong. Actually, God has spoken to me about some things that are wrong in my life, and for Israel it was Achan's sin, and that's been dealt with, but things aren't yet coming back together somehow, so maybe there's more sin somewhere. Should have another little look, a little witch hunt in my life, and just see if I can find a bit more of something to deal with, and we wonder whether our ongoing failure arises from just how rubbish we are. Yeah. But the truth is that our victory doesn't come from how great we are, it comes from how great God is. God's remedy to this melted heart is a fresh word. He speaks afresh to Joshua. He speaks words to Joshua's inner man. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Now, I know that many of you have heard words like that from God, and you know that it's more than just the kind of content That you can kind of write down on a page. When God speaks, his word is living and active and it does something to us. When God says to us, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, we go, oh, that's very interesting, yeah, I'll make a I'll make a note of that. (laughs) It's it's not like that. When God speaks, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, I'm not afraid anymore. Where did that go? A word from God that changes me. And the word from God to Joshua also came with a natty little strategy. too a fresh word about what to do. Set an ambush. Set an ambush. Victory comes. Now, we can keep going back over the things that have gone wrong and trying to unpick where they all went wrong but you know what? It's much better to go to God and get a fresh word from him. There's something about him speaking to us, which is revival for us. Failure is rather like grief. It pulls you down to a place of numbness. Experts in bereavement describe some common stages of bereavement. The first of those is a numbness of emotion. Um denial of the reality of what's happened because it's just too big and too painful and numbness overtakes us. After the numbness comes strong feeling, whether it's anger or depression. And we hesitate to go into that season of processing our feelings. It's easier to live with the numbness than to face the reality of what has happened. But the end... Season, although because it's an ongoing season, it doesn't just bereavement doesn't end in that way. But there is a kind of settled season that you can come out into, where there's acceptance of what has happened, can look at it, can look back at the things that have been lost or the defeat squarely, and no longer be intimidated by the reality. But there's a newness. There are new things, new patterns of life, new challenges, new dreams, new things that God gives to us. And the Word of God brings those things. In the face of life's knocks, what we need is refreshing in the Lord. We need revival in ourselves, that the melted heart would come back to life by the power of God, that we might move forward. It's one thing to gain peace about the reality of a disappointment, but a whole further thing to step forward into new life. But it's available to us. Much of the rest of the chapter explains to us in detail how that victory happened. A couple of verses, a word from God, and then this flow of power and life as events unfold according to the word of God. Are you disappointed at a a broken relationship? Are you struggling with rejection? Are you frustrated at a lack of healing? Are you frustrated at a lack of evangelistic fruitfulness? God wants to come close to you and to speak to you. It's not just like a special favor for Joshua because he was a leader or something. God wants to come close to you and to speak to you. In Hosea, there's this amazing, amazing thing that Hosea says. You see, the place where they burnt Achan's body and piled stones over it was called the Valley of Akor. That's what it said at the end of chapter 7. In Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, God says to, uh, of his people, therefore I am now going to allure them and I will lead them into the desert and speak tenderly to them. And it says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There's not a need for us to flee the memory of our failures as if they can't be dealt with. In God's way of working, the very things, the very things that have troubled us become a door of hope. So I'm going to jump down to verse 30. You've read the story already. And talk about a pattern that comes out in these last few verses. This pla- Has anybody been to this place? I have. That's me at the bottom there with amber. This is in Cornwall. This is a place called Gwenap Pit. It is a man-made amphitheater, but not man-made in the way that you might think. It's land above a tin mine. And the tin mine collapsed. And the land subsided and formed this amphitheater. And sometime later, somebody thought it would be good to put all the terraces in. So the terraces are later. So uh, you see the stones at the top there? That is where Methodist preachers used to stand and preach to crowds in that space of about 10,000 during the Wesleyan Revival. This was, they call this the cathedral of the open air in Cornwall. It's the place where crowds of the largest number could gather and hear a message being spoken. And uh, it's a place of revival, and it's an amphitheater. And what we find that touches on two things that are in Joshua chapter 8. There is an amphitheater, and there is a place of revival. In verse 30, where it says that Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar, actually, the the activity here, the action, has moved about 20 miles north from Ai. They've gone to a place which you can find on Google Earth. I did. Could we have the next slide, please? Here it is. This is the place. This is the place. It's now called Nablus. You might have heard of Nablus in Israel. But once upon a time, this place was called Shechem. And I don't know if you can see there, but underneath Uh, where the words are, there is a kind of round area with two cup-shaped mountains, one on each side. Can you see that? This is the place. It is another natural amphitheater. Well, well, the other one wasn't that. It's another outdoors amphitheater. This one is a natural one, and it's huge. On the one side, on the right, which is to the north, there is Mount Ebal, click, there we go, and we'll talk about the curses in a minute. On the left, to the south, is Mount Gerizim, which is a place of blessing. And the whole thing all around is about a mile across. And it's amazing. If you go there, I've not done it myself, but I have been reading a bit about this week, and discover it's quite clearly the case. If you go there, because of the shape of the place, you can stand on one side and speak and be heard on the other at a great distance. You see, And they knew this, they knew of this place. So before Moses died, he gave a command. And he said, when you get into the promised land and have access to that wonderful natural amphitheater, which is Mount Ebal and Gerizim at Shechem, what you need to do is you need to go there and do some stuff. You need to speak some stuff to each other. And they went there because of the geography of the place. And these are some of the things that they did there. They're all all listed off here. Kind of bullet point style it 's like an executive summary or something here in these verses there 's actually more detail of what they did, given in the commands of Moses recorded a little bit earlier in deuteronomy chapters eleven and twenty seven so we won 't keep flicking back and forth, but I will read a few things from deuteronomy twenty seven and twenty eight just to Fill out the picture that's here in Joshua chapter 8. So, what was going on? The first thing is that they all met here. All of the people came. And there's enough space. And they could hear each other in this wonderful, wonderful setting. They all came here. uh, Men, women, children, aliens. I love the aliens. Uh, I do. It always makes me smile and chuckle, that's one thing. Because we use the word so differently nowadays. Uh, But also the fact that there were many people amongst the Israelites who were not born Hebrews, but had chosen faith in Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and had found a place subject to the same laws uh, as as the Hebrew people themselves. So they're all gathered together. And then I will turn to Deuteronomy chapter 27, because it explains what was planned for them to do. Moses, this is verse... 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses commanded the people, when you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, and these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So what happened was, as they gathered, half of Israel is on one side, on the Mount Gerizim, and they are proclaiming blessings over the other side. They were the Mount of Blessing, and Deuteronomy chapter 28 lists some of the blessings that they would have called out across the valley, that everybody could hear them. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. You will be blessed in the city. You will be blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land and the young of your flock. Your basket, your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when? When, when, you, when you come in, you'll be blessed. When you go out, You'll be blessed. And they proclaim this from Mount Girazim blessing, the Lord bless you, the Lord bless you. Do the Lord's word and he will bless you. The other half read the other side of the story. What happens to those who don't follow the Lord's commands? If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow, all his commands, you will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country, cursed when you go out and when you come in. So Deuteronomy 27 lists a whole number of specific curses that were to be read on this occasion. Cursed is the man who carves an idol or, casts, or carves an image or casts an idol and sets it up in secret. Then all the people shall say, Amen! Cursed is the man who dishonours his father or his mother. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. All the people shall say, Amen. And so they shouted back and forth to each other about the word of God and the consequences of obeying the word of God. There will be blessing. And the consequences of disobeying, there will be cursing. And then on Mount Ebal, an altar was set up. And on that altar, they offered burnt offerings. Now, a burnt offering, was kind of, you know, does what it says. You took an animal, and you put it on the altar, and it burnt. It was like, well, you cooked it, basically. But you took the whole animal, and put the whole animal on the altar, and it burnt, and it cooked. And... The idea really was it was like you were cooking something for God. You kind of gave it to him as a gift. God, would you? I want to give something to you that's costly to me that you would enjoy. That's what a burnt offering was about. And it was understood to be a sacrificial gift given by the giver of the offering, but uh, also it was to atone for sin. So if you'd done something wrong, you could make a burnt offering and sin would be forgiven. They also made fellowship offerings, which were a little bit like burnt offerings, only you could include bread as well. Um, And with the fellowship offerings, you didn't put it all on the altar. You kept a little bit of it back. And then, uh, you could sit and eat that together. So, the altar became like a restaurant kitchen. God got some of the offering, but the people got the rest of it to be able to cook for themselves and to eat together. And so the fellowship offering spoke of the people that had come sharing a meal with God. God's getting some of it and we eat the rest together. We are enjoying a meal with God. That's what it symbolized, a time of fellowship with him, a time of closeness to the God with whom we relate. And then finally... Uh, they have set up the Word of God on tablets. In Deuteronomy, it explains in some detail what's to be done there to get some stones and put plaster on the stones and then etch into the plaster the words of God, the law of God, that it might be a permanent memorial. And it, too, was on Mount Ebal. Now, this is key. Why, you see, why would you need all of that on Mount Ebal? the place of cursing. See, in the place of failure and of God's pleasure turning from us, in that precise place, the provision of an altar is made. In that place, an altar is provided which allows for the forgiveness of sin and for fresh relationship with God. And in that place on Mount Ebal, where there is fresh encounter and relationship with God, there is the provision of his word laid out, which just reminds everyone, you know, of how it all works. And if only they would read that and take it on board, they could get off this mount of curses and start heading back towards doing things the Lord's way and getting the blessings that are symbolized by Mount Gerizim. It's an amazing picture, because it sums up so much of what the Israelites have themselves just experienced. They'd been told by God there's a right way to live, and they'd taken it on board in faith, and they'd gone into the promised land, and they'd seen things happen, but it was only, as Moses prophesied, a matter of time before they started to get things wrong. And when they got things wrong, there was defeat, the curse of God upon them. But that wasn't the end of the story. It wasn't just the kind of the one episode before failure and ending, but there was provision in God's will for them of renewal and revival. God speaks to them and says, we can deal with the sin. The sin that led to this, we can, they've seen it happen in God highlighting Achan and getting rid of him. Huh. And they've found, in taking AI, they've got renewed relationship with God. It's all happening for them again. He's instructed them and given them a fresh word that set them out. So, in this massive natural amphitheater, they are reenacting ceremonially and symbolically the reality of what they've just been living. All the components of the life that they have and the way that life will be are there for them. Now, they lived under an old covenant. We have a better covenant. As Christians, we have a better covenant. In the old covenant, not everybody came to the altar on equal terms, but all can come equally to Jesus. In the old covenant, some sins would never be forgiven, but the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We have a better sacrifice. Jesus... We have a better word that comes to us and we don't simply get to eat a meal and kind of think about the fact that God's with us. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us that we might enjoy fellowship directly with God. So there's a whole load of what they experienced which is a bit different for us. Ours is better than the provision that they had. But there's quite a lot here that's the same. The pattern of experience is very, very much the same. This is how it goes in our Christian lives, that we set out to follow God and to do what he says. And we experience some success. But we also experience some failure. We experience some defeat. And disappointment we do, just as they did. But for us, what we can do constrained, as it were, to being on that Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing, what we can do is come back in our prayers to the cross, the altar on which the Son of God himself was sacrificed for our sins. And we can find forgiveness for our sin, but not only that, we can find a fresh connection with God and in that fresh connection with God, we can hear Him speak afresh to us words that will bring us new life. That's how it works for us too. And having heard from God, we venture forth once more up the Mount of Blessing. That's how it goes. It's not the case for the Israelites that once they crossed the Jordan, like everything was just victory, victory, automatic victory there on in. <laughs> It's not how it works. There were processes for them of venturing out, going, oh, hang on, but turning back to God. For them, turning to the altar and its sacrifices and remembering the law of Moses. Going forth again for us, turning to one much better, turning to Jesus, to his sacrifice, to the cross, being forgiven, being revived and sent back out again. So I'm going to finish right now with a simple question. All of what I've said has been building towards a simple question. Actually, it's a really good question. It's a question which I hope will remain with you all the days of your life. Um, It's a question that I believe is absolutely key to the victorious Christian life. Uh, If you can solve this, actually it's not really solved, if you can respond well to this, because you'll need God's help to respond well to it, If you can respond well to this, I promise you, you will have a wonderful life with Christ. The question is this, how long will you leave it? After failure, in the area of your disappointment and frustration, how long will you leave it before you turn to the cross? See, we all fail, and we all need to do this thing of <sighs> arising from the place of numbness and trying to forget. To allow ourselves to, to face the reality of the issue, and to turn to God and say, forgive me and can we connect again? <laughs> Please. And the issue is how, how long does it take for us to do that? How long will we live with the numbness and the second-rateness of the knocks of life leading leaving us with our hearts melted? How long will we live with that before we turn to God? Um, I've observed that it might take years before we take particular knocks and failures. To God. We might live for years. We might even live for the rest of our lives. Justifying it, we conceive the inability to know. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I could stay here the rest of my life, not knowing and probably justify it fairly well because life is very confusing. How long before we turn to Christ? If we turn quickly, and we have a habit of turning quickly, we'll live a great life with Christ. Because when we turn to him, he does all the stuff. I mean, he forgives us, and he cleanses us, and he fills us, and he speaks to us. Something might not resolve everything that we experience, but it's new, and it takes us forward. God always has a word for us that ministers to us and takes us forward. So how long are you going to leave it? How long between failure and revival? And my encouragement to you is, don't delay. Please don't delay, Whatever issues may have come up as we have been looking at this story of AI and revival that followed it, um, whatever you're aware of, don't delay. Don't push the knowledge of your sin to one side because it's too awkward. Just turn it to God and your life will be better. Much, much better for it.